0: I'm Matt Swain and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications Podcast, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. Today, I'm joined by Emily Wengert, Group VP of User Experience at end-to-end experiential agency HUGE. Emily, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Certainly. So, if I look at HUGE, it's really interesting that you're focusing on creating unified brand experiences, and that that really makes me that much more excited about the bigger discussion that we can have. Mm-hmm. I'd love to start with a setup of you giving some background on who Huge or what Huge is.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I've been at Huge 10 years. I've seen a lot there, and our origins are as a product and platform company. So we started out doing websites and apps and all the traditional things. We were digital first as a company. But what's been really interesting over time is uh, how the assignments started to change. And part of that's because we were founded on user-centric principles kind of before Mm -hmm. it was cool. And so a lot of what we were bringing to our clients was, how do you actually not just communicate what you want to say, but rather communicate what they want to hear? And that shift was, is we all know, kind of the origins of the movement towards more user-centric design and UX professionals and all of that. So. It started as products and platforms because that was always the highly functional piece of the story. Mm -hmm. But what's amazing is the need for UX has actually extended past that. So the next thing we ended up adding many years ago was campaigns and communications. So this is everything now from Super Bowl ads to social media campaigns to even banner work, you know, and CRM stuff. So we're kind of all over the place there because what's starting to shift is that even when you're doing advertising, like more classically, you can still be user-centric as you achieve it. And so that became a natural expansion of what we've always done. But then even more recently, an area we call places and spaces, and this is a focus for us on physical and digital. And what's interesting is what's happened over time is as computing parts have gotten smaller and more powerful, and as the batteries and the ways to power them have changed and gotten easier to make more compact and more portable, The world around us has started getting infused in digital. So instead of digital being a surface that from computer to phone, we've all gone through that transformation and started to talk about omni-channel and how do you bring digital into store or digital into, you know, a bank branch or into a brand experience. It was always how do you add a screen? And what's been really interesting is with places and spaces and really where tech is headed We're finally able to actually enchant the spaces that we visit with technology, adding in an underlying layer so the technology isn't always as visible, but it's actually much more powerful and can achieve richer personalization, richer experiences, and more brand connection than ever before.
0: So it's fascinating. And I I love the progression that you walked through over that 10-year period. I'd be curious, is it a reactive approach to how you support client needs? Like there was a client that said, can you help me with this? And you realize there was something there, or is it really trying to get out ahead of the entire pack and be disruptive in that way?
1: It's definitely a combination of both. For sure, you have a client that's willing to kind of go there with you. And so you take advantage of that. But I think a piece of it too, is that in many ways, the clients have changed so much in I, my career is longer than just the 10 years I've been sure. at Huge, right? In the 15 to 20 years that we've all been thinking digitally. And what's changed is the the maturity of the client. We used to be able to be the only experts in the room. Now we're partners. We're working side by side to achieve things together. And when it comes to things like products and platforms, a lot of our clients are owning that themselves in a way they didn't used to. They have their own teams in-house. They're coming to us for fresh thinking. They're coming to us for bigger initiatives, but also often with the adjective innovation attached. You know, how do we leap over where we are? And a lot of times they recognize that what's happening internally is always you're doing sort of proximal improvement. You're always kind of adjusting and making better the thing you've already got in front of you. It's the kind of team they hire to support the existing products and services. But if you want to actually be jumping ahead and even beating your disruptors before the disruptors show up, then you have to actually question everything. And I think having an outside perspective is, is valuable for that. And then the answers are no longer just, well, let's redesign your website. The answer has to be more complete than that and think through every touch point. And that's, of course, when omnichannel becomes the the buzzword, right? Absolutely. And so then you start showing up in more places. As an agency, we always have to offer what the client can't make themselves, right? We have to be a value add in many ways. And the client's value is always understanding their business. And our value is understanding. Um, people because of the user-centric sort of blood we have, you know, the sort of roots of the of the company, but also in understanding technology. I mean, we're we're students of it. We're constantly getting new technology and playing with it. I've been looking at holograms lately, eye tracking, right. robots, all of it. We're playing around with all of that so that as clients come to us and like, what's next, we actually can help with that question and not just look as panicked as they do. <laughs>
0: right. And I love that it's more of a collaboration now where you're working with in-house teams that are as sophisticated but just might be looking for a different spin on something that they've already been looking at. Oh, yeah, I, I'd love to hear about some of the the fun projects that you've been working on.
1: Yeah, my clients inspire me as much as my own colleagues. You know, they're coming in and they're asking for things that are super exciting. And so most recently, I've been working on some pop-up experiential work in, in Tokyo in particular. I've been there for two different pop-ups I've gotten to lead. And it's amazing because their boldness inspires me. You know, I'm right. interested in, in changing the game. And I'm usually the one kind of pushing and saying, well, let's challenge that and let's think differently. In this case, and the client is SK2. They are a mega beauty brand in Asia, super big in Japan and China owned by P&G, but Mm -hmm. headquartered in Singapore. And they have a lot of appetite to change the game. And so they're coming to us and saying, we really want to challenge how skincare retail happens and add the fun to it is one kind of thing they've asked us to do. Add the personalization to it, but really attract the 20 to 30 year old to it. And think about it in new and fresh ways, they're trying to think really broadly about the shifting marketplace to not just have a connection of object in hand, but more relationship with and and sense of kind of connection to the brand that happens through both product and experience together. So I've been working on these crazy pop-ups. So they're having these kind of three month retail test beds that they're producing throughout Asia. So they've done two in Tokyo that I led, one in Shanghai and one in Singapore. And we're just pushing the envelope. We're trying the craziest things we possibly can and then seeing sort of how consumers deal with that.
0: You're talking about pushing the envelope. Can you give some examples
1: So we've been doing some stuff with computer vision. For the first two pop-ups, one of the pieces you were welcomed into was called Art of You. You walk in and it actually reads your expression and builds an art piece off of your expression. So through computer vision, we're actually understanding the emotion that you're bringing in. Mm. If you're smiling and or if you're angry, if you're shocked, it all changes color and the whole thing. And it's in real time. So this isn't just like we took a picture and then produced a piece. You can actually interact with the art piece together with it because that's the first face forward is of your skin is your face. And then from there, we did a skin scan. So the skin scan was hands-free and without a beauty consultant who had to help. So that's pretty atypical. In fact, we think it's the first in in the world. So you actually sit in a booth and from about 18 inches away, they're able to measure the quality of your skin. And so you get your skin analyzed in an entirely new way and in a way that allows you to feel like you're having your own personal relationship with, with the brand You know, one of the insights is that young people don't necessarily want to be sold to in the same way. Thanks to the Internet, they're coming in as experts already in beauty in many ways. They've researched already. They know what they like and they know what they don't. And they don't necessarily want to talk to some beauty consultant who's going to judge them. You know, they want to have a moment to themselves to figure it out and have private moments in public space. So we're playing with a lot of things there.
0: I think that whole experience that you're creating makes for a better complement to today's consumer because you're talking about they're coming in educated. They have different expectations for what they're going to get in the store. They might want to touch and feel the product, but if you're creating an in-store experience, ultimately you're giving them more reason to get excited about making that trip as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think you know retail is actually quite emotional. You know, mm-hmm. how do you actually connect and desire something is that's a that's an emotion, that's not a logic, you know, in the end even what we think is a logical retail choice is oftentimes truly an emotional one, right. you know. And so I think this idea that you could develop experiences that can make people have that kind of emotional reaction to your brand is a perfect evolution of how we've been thinking about retail historically, you know? And so a lot of the work that I continue to do with SK2 is all about applying it into real retail and seeing how we can take all these crazy technologies and bring them to life within the constraint of traditional retail problems, you know, Mm -hmm. and and retail problem solving.
0: I was watching a presentation that you had given.
1: Oh dear. And
0: (laughs) I thought it was really interesting. You were talking about designing a retail store experience and building on what we've talked about here. You said you, you can't really go in and say, I'm going to design a store and then I'm going to add digital. We need to design store experiences. And I'd love to just get your thoughts on expanding on that thought and how that relates to some of what you've, you've just said.
1: Yeah. Being able to not just think about, okay, I've built a space you know, oftentimes you have an architect at the table and you've kind of put all together the measurements and mm. you've made sure that it's ergonomic. But that isn't actually building an experience. That's just building a shell. Right. And so if you want to build an experience, you have to marry that with what stories are you telling? What touch points are you creating that are going to be your signature moments? And taking advantage of the tactility of a physical space. So the challenge with throwing a screen into a physical space in and of itself, just on its own, is that you finally have your customer in your physical space, and you're speaking to them in a in a channel they can or on a surface they can already use, right? Which would be a digital surface instead of saying like, "Great, I want them to touch my product," right. you know. And that's why putting sensors under the products was so the right answer because our dream and our measurement of success was not, did you touch our touchscreen? It was, did you touch the product? Because that's actually what leads to sales. You go into physical spaces for the tactility of it all. And if all we think we're doing when we add technology into physical space is to kind of make everything about pixels, then we've definitely failed, right? Right. And actually, people are craving escapes from pixels. And so to use technology as an underlying enhancement, and I, I often use the word enchanting on purpose because enchantment means that the object still holds its value in and of itself, that the enchantment is just the sparkle that you've added on top of that to make it so that I can pick up a bottle and suddenly something's changing around me and the information that's being brought to me is for me. And that's because we've enchanted that bottle, not because we've just had a screen there and you have to tap and navigate to get to the point where it's going to give you that bottle's information and replicated our website inside a store. That's a disaster.
0: I love that setup. Often businesses ask too much of the consumer in order to create the experience. They have to take more actions or steps that that create friction in that, if it's just a matter of me interacting with something and you responding with a message or an experience, that's what I'm going to do in my everyday store experience anyway.
1: Yeah. It's enabling what you already have as habits and patterns and then adding to that as opposed to disrupting that, right?
0: So if I take the comment about creating store experiences or designing for store experiences, and and I look at in the customer communication space, we look at Companies that say I have a regulatory need to create a printed communication, and then they say, "Well, actually, it doesn't have to be print. That's just the lowest common denominator. It can also be digital." So they design for the print, then they design for the digital. Sometimes vice versa, but more often print first than digital. Do they
1: digital. PDF it? Is that what happens? They PDF <laughs> it.
0: You can go find it and drag it and zoom it on your phone. Mm-hmm. But you know that that approach in itself. I have to design a communication for a channel is a flawed experience as well. It really should be we need to design a communications experience and then what are the different ways in which our customers are going to interact and benefit from that that experience.
1: That's right, yeah. I think what's interesting is that every channel has its own opportunity and also its own constraint, and from a user perspective, often its own context. So if I'm standing in a bank, that's a – different moment than if I'm standing at the bus, Mm. stop waiting for the bus, or if I'm home with my kids and they're running around like crazy. Those are all really different moments and your capacity for engaging with the brand is going to be quite different, right? right? And so I think the dream that we're all after but haven't yet attained is the perfection of matching context to communication. So if we were able to, instead of worrying about channel or instead of worrying about print first or some sort of first channel and then the rest can follow, you know, that actually is born out of how humans think, I think. We can't hold 12 thoughts in our head at once, but there are 12 plus channels we have to design for. And so I think we, to simplify it for ourselves as producers of content that we want people to receive, we use some shorthand and we take some shortcuts just to kind of function. And the truth is we have to measure the concession we're making as we do that that when we kind of let one channel lead you're naturally then handicapping other channels mm-hmm. and and other places where you might communicate from being as truly service oriented as you want them to be
0: maybe it was 18 months ago mm-hmm. Broadridge had done the the Future of Communications initiative, and and HUGE was a big part of that. And it was really focused on breaking today's bills and statements, designing an optimal communications experience for the year 2025. Mm -hmm. We touched on it a little bit in episode six with Rob Krugman, but I'd love to have you give a refresher for our listeners and also from the HUGE perspective, the context of the role that you played in that future of communications initiative.
1: Yeah, Rob was so fun to work with and his whole team too. It was really great, really one of my favorite things I've done. And what was so neat about it is a few things. One was the way we set up the structure was insanely fast. We did it all in four weeks. So I think a lot of times when people look to break something and challenge it and go, they feel like you have to kind of spend months setting up a lot of other, you know, mm-hmm. kind of strategies or you have to kind of... And we just really pushed hard to get into the act of making as fast as possible. So we didn't want to stay in idea land. We wanted to then test those ideas and try to make them true. So we had this assignment, how do you change the bill? We had user research done in the first two or three days of the four weeks that just gave us like anecdotes in our head. One of the women who we interviewed for that described how she would take her bill and throw it down in front of the dishwasher. And that's because she had to walk in and out of her kitchen every day and she knew that that would help her remember to pay her bill. So she had like bills presumably all over her floor (laughs) that she needed to pay. But it's such a sign of how much work we're putting on Mm -hmm. people to try to just get this one task done, that it's complicated. And for folks who don't have the luxury of auto pay, where it feels like it should be really easy and and kind of done for you, when you don't financially have that luxury, you're in a really different situation and the mental calculus is high, right? The amount of work they have to do. So that was all the setup. You know, we kicked this off and said, and then the second piece of what I loved about this wasn't just the speed because we did the whole thing in four weeks. It was the competition. So we right. had five teams on competition. I got to be an advisor to all five teams. so I had the best angle on everything and got to have the fun of kind of hearing them spark and figuring out what the right answer is. And then we had Broadridge actually at the table advising, frequently coming in. Rob in particular would come in and answer their questions, look at some draft thoughts they were having, and coach them to make sure that these were really business right, that we weren't just off in dreamland of designers designing to design you know yeah. that we were really answering a true need and fitting a, a business future that Broadridge knew was coming right and then the team makeup itself was kind of the the last piece of magic because what we did was what I would consider kind of mashups we would mash up completely different skill sets so all five teams instead of being like I'll take one of these one of these one of these times 5 we did a mashup between physical design and content strategy and Mm -hmm. we sort of threw that together and we're like let's see where they go and then we got another group that was industrial design times the motion team and we threw them in and just sort of like come up with something you know we really wanted brains that come at problems in different ways and because of all the skill sets at huge we have the luxury of being able to do a lot of different combinations and we wanted them to intersect and question each other and then the way they would then communicate their ideas would then match the kind of combo mashup of of who was at that table. So, it was super cool because sometimes if you if you briefed five people, you can actually kind of get sometimes some similar answers coming back at mm-hmm. you. And because of the actual sort of brain style that we had done these mashups, we got extremely different answers. And that was part of the fun. Each team had to come up with two ideas, so we had 10 crazy ideas coming at us and it was just it was so fun to be watching Broadridge kind of receive these ideas and then kind of push on them and question them, but the the kind of fun part, the, the reason I think Rob and I both really enjoyed this together was how varying everything was, that there isn't any one future out there, and to imagine that you're going to kind of future-proof yourself and predict that future is is a bit silly, and so this really allowed us to scatter seeds, you mm-hmm. know, to go in a lot of different directions at once and sort of just play in a playground that was really open-ended But we did require everyone to think five to seven years out. So it wasn't like flying cars and, you know, we all wore bionic suits that, you know, turn us into chameleons, you know, like it allowed us to sort of stay within some constraint, which is also important for great ideas.
0: Now we're bionic suits like 10 years out.
1: Yeah, that's at least 10 to 11, (laughs) you know, although the rate we're we're testing things on SK-2, maybe just two years. (laughs) Right, right.
0: I think it's important to push the envelope and throw out traditional norms Have a chance to start fresh and bring in people that don't spend their day thinking about a bill or a statement. That's right. You know, how can we improve that experience taking a brand new approach where it doesn't have to be the way it's always been?
1: Yeah. Well, and some of the ideas were off the wall. And one of my favorites was actually quite simple in the end. And it was this piece of paper that had a sensor added. And the magic of the way, and we actually prototyped this for real, so when the judges came, because it was a competition and Broadridge judges came to tell us which one won, they actually demoed this in in real time, which was a piece of paper that had a sensor attached to it. And w- when you tore off the, the piece to say, that, you know, as if you were going to pay your bill and ma- mail it back in the envelope, it broke the sensor, which told your phone that you were paying your bill. And so it actually then could auto bring up the confirm page on your phone so you could just hit confirm and it was paid. And it was one of those, like, everyone just saw that. It. it was just like, what? Did that just happen? Right. You know, like, and the sensor was a little big. Like, you can't go into mass production yet. But it was so cool. And it was one of those things that just, you know, it's the right time right now as technology just got so many things are in flight and growing. It's a really exciting time to think differently about problems.
0: The theme in that, as well as some of the store experiences you've been talking about, is you merge the tactile... The consumer desire to have the tactile experience with a digital experience that takes advantage of the latest and greatest technology. So if you can feed off of tying the two together, the tactile and the digital experience, I think that's a really compelling space to be in.
1: Yeah, and in many ways, that is the new frontier, because it was either physical or it was digital, and all of a sudden, you're putting the two together in really different ways and that's frankly not a challenge we've, we're have 20 years into practicing it it's right. solving. You know, it's it, there's a new opportunity to think differently about this.
0: It was really a fascinating exercise of reimagining communications that are often overlooked. And as the world of technology advancements and enhanced customer experiences have marched on since that exercise, do you have any hypotheses for how the ideas might differ if we conducted the exercise again today?
1: It's such a good question. And I think in many ways there's A few technologies that even just a year and a half ago weren't real enough yet for Mm -hmm. us to consider them a five to seven year story that I think now we would immediately turn to. Facial recognition actually being one of them. I don't remember any team bringing that up or talking about it, but I do think that's very much in play and turns out to be quite powerful when personalization's needed. So I think that's an avenue to explore. We had a little bit of AI and machine learning But I actually think that's much deeper now. Our understanding of where that's headed or where that could head has certainly gotten richer in the Mm -hmm. last two years. So I would expect those ideas. I would actually expect every team to bring some sort of machine learning AI idea back. Like you just can't not think that any longer. So that would I think would be an enormous place to focus and then I think in general that idea that everything's getting smaller and leaner and and meaner, I'd be really curious where there might be other sensors and kind of chips and objects that are kind of that idea of being able to bring more I- items and elements into your space in an easier way. I think there's something there too that's just we were scratching the surface in many ways and you know it's like every year something new is coming out where you're like is that even possible. Like, you know, like we're, we're starting to shock ourselves in some respects. And that's frankly, that's the fun of the job. You know, that's the fun thinking about communications holistically and storytelling that comes with that and thinking about how we can connect with the consumer in really modern ways. It's so exciting and it's changing every, every month. And that's the excitement is the need to keep learning and keep challenging ourselves And even to keep remembering that in the end, a piece of paper is still really powerful. I love that an idea that was five to seven years out still had a piece of paper in it. You know, that's so accurate. You know, as much as we love technology and as fun as it is to talk about bonkers things, the idea that the whole world just wants to give up paper that's actually not what's happening. You know, what's happening is we're able to make tactile things that humans actually gravitate towards. We like to feel the rough surface of a farmhouse table or, you know, right. like we, we like a soft fuzzy sweater, whatever it is. And so the idea that we can kind of not lose that any longer, the way it was always sort of a, you had to choose one or the other, and that's not happening anymore. I think it sounds corny to have talked about sweaters and then say that it has something to do with bills, but like, you know, I, I think that's where like it's all going is this idea that you don't have to get as separated from real life in order to be kind of in a tech forward place. I love it. Emily, thank you so much for joining today.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I'm Matt Swain and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications Podcast. If you like this episode and think somebody else would too, please share it, leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights and our innovations, visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn.